Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. But uh, this room, I, I pretty much made. I uh, from the framing to painting to putting everything up, made it all myself. So, is this your office where it's like the magic room is hidden? It's like this. Right. Thing. So now you need to make a lever with like a skull on it, so that you like pull it down. <laughs> that would be awesome. And then it's like. <sighs> I was talking to Sabrina Scott yesterday, and uh, she has this amazing new graphic novel called Witch Body. And we were talking about how magic is an environmental thing, as in a lot of people. And this is something that I'm so interested to talk to you about more because, you know, like the type of magic that you do, it's just like very ceremonial. Like you are sort of like, I don't want to say like the person doing it is God, but there is this thing about where in that space, you know, you are commanding, you are the center, you are the subject of the the operation versus the type of magic that she writes about in her book is where it's a little bit more Asian style where it's not so anthropocentric. It's not so human centric. We're just a part mm -hmm. of the natural world. It's kind of a paradox, but it's actually the same thing uh, because even in, in uh, my second book, the one that you have, uh, Gabriel talks about doing away with, with hierarchy. That was his whole thing. And he's talking about from, animals to anything else is like do away with hierarchy you're no better than anything else and um it, it may seem like kind of a conundrum or a paradox but um when you're in that state it's, it's really not you you are stepping in one with divinity and i think when you really do that then there isn't a hierarchy there isn't i am better than this and, and controlling these things that are under I me mean, you are part of that matrix but you're you're moving in from a place that is, is very much aware of being a part of that that huge matrix, that, that whole design. And I think that's what, when people say like stepping in, connecting with, with God or divinity or this thing, that's, that's what it's truly about. And I think um, in our minds, when we're just in our day-to-day, -day, we, we think of things differently. We can't appreciate being connected to every single person, every single thing and uh, being a working part instead of, you know, dividing us from everything else. And uh, every time I'm in, that, in the operation, you can really feel that. And so, yeah, I really, personally, I don't see it different. I, I think it's considered differently, maybe academically, and, and um, you know, uh, when you're studying it rationally, you're just, uh, I don't know, you know, the word that I'm looking for, you're just trying to, perceive what it's all about but when you're in the midst of it I think it you know it's the same thing I mean there's there's no hierarchy and there's no division but having that awareness and being able to move from that and mystic can open themselves up but it's always passive if nature wants to feel something spiritual or magical uh, the will needs to receive it if divinity wants to reveal something then you receive it if it comes uh, but magic is always different where you are 
calling it, you are consciously bringing it there and, and trying to make something happen that you want to do with your consciousness. So it's a little bit more willful that way where, you know, you're intending to move things around the chessboard, even though you are connected to everything, you're, you're actively um, manipulating something about it. I think that's a very important point to bring up because I feel as though a lot of young magicians, ceremonial magicians, I feel like they're sort of like in that like ubermensch mindset where it's sort of like, I am God, you know, I am the ultimate, I am going to control and dominate the spirits, whatever. But what you're talking about is not about domination. It's not about control. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot different. So I think there's a maturity and uh, kind of a getting out of, I think when young magicians come into that, they're really in their kind of fantasy mode. You have an idea of what that's supposed to be like, or they see other rituals where, you know, they're assuming, you know, gods and this kind of thing. But when you're in the midst of actually having these experiences, especially when the angels are present, there's no ego there. Even if you have a goal or something that you want to change, uh, it's a very different uh, mindset and, and place of being where you're not commanding, you're, you're finding ways to accomplish what you want. But, um, you know, all of these energies are moving around and, and anybody that thinks that they can be stand in a point where they can see all ends at the same time, like some of these beings are fooling themselves. I mean, it's, you really do get humbled, I think, being in their presence because, you know, they, they will counsel a lot of times that, you know, you don't see everything that's going on, you're, you're missing this, or you have to appreciate the struggle because it's important. It is interesting, and it's always a, a balance of accomplishing practical things and, and assisting people, but even when people say, hey, I'm, I need this, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, or I want this in my life, can you evoke a spirit and get this for me? You know, I'm very pointed in saying, um, if I think their petition is something I want to take on, I say, like, I can ask them, uh, but I'm not going to bind them and force them. Um, I'm going to find out what the best course could be for you and see if they have any advice. And if they can do something for you, fantastic. But, um, you know, this might not be something that's in your best interest. And I'm not, I'm not going, just because you pay me, I'm not going to try to force something that will ultimately make your life a living hell or go a way that you were not intending, which can definitely happen in magic for sure. And that's, I think, part of that maturity in working with it. Nobody really talks about that, what it means to be a mature magician. Um, we just talk about powerful magicians. Part of it is, oh, by the way, I totally forgot to do an intro. Hello. <laughs> it's like we just got into this conversation. I was all caught up in your like office, your little hidden room. And I was just like, whoa. This always happens when I talk to you and Jason Miller. It's like we just started <laughs> just right start off going. at the gate talking about magic. <laughs> Ooh. Don't record that. <laughs> I'm definitely keeping that in. Oh All my of my credit will be gone. Hello, everybody. Chawan here. And you guys asked, and I shall deliver. I have never had so many people in the comments and in personal messages ask me, please bring back a guest ASAP. As often as it happened with this gentleman. So I'm just like, okay, I know I just talked to him, but I just have to talk to him again because everybody just loved the past interview. 
I think it was Gordon White who said that one of the fastest ways to become magical is to spend a night alone in uh, an abandoned mental institute. <laughs> I'd agree. Either that or um, I'm kind of a nature person myself, but same idea. The same idea. I'm, you know, especially these people wanting power, wanting to, to really see themselves in a powerful light. I, I don't mean to, to sometimes pick on my, my uh, pagan and new age, you know, brothers and sisters that way, but there's people that you know, love nature and they're all about nature, their whole spirituality is nature, but they're, you wouldn't get comfortable by themselves in the middle of a forest or mountains or the wilderness. And to me, that, that says something very important to me. That's kind of building the reality versus the fantasy. And some people will get angry with that, but it's like you, you have to ask yourself those questions. If, if you're drawn to nature and you're all about nature, but you can't be out there by yourself and, and you can't survive comfortably or you know, really spend some good time out there, you, you have to look at the reality of, of what you think you believe and who you think you are. Um, and this is kind of a, a hardcore approach that I, I do take with magic a lot of times is, is, you know, what are you doing really? It's, I understand the draw, I understand the appeal, but, you know, how, how real are you going to make this for yourself? What are you willing to do to, to test those boundaries? If we stay in a safe place, then you get the safe version of magic, which is fine for a lot of people. That's legit, because I was just thinking about, I can't say the quote, um, like word for word, but I think it was Terry Pratchett who said he wrote a book and one of the lines was a witch is not afraid to walk alone in the forest because she's the most terrifying thing in the forest. Like she herself is the one that everybody else should be afraid of. So she has nothing to fear when she's in the forest by herself. And I think a lot of people want to be that badass witch. Um, but yeah, the idea of going out by yourself in the forest, that's scary. That's super I scary. Do it. Yeah, and I do it about every year. <laughs> like, okay. No. Speaking of, like, okay, like, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, like, just a lot of young witches who are just going to be super frightened just to even consider, oh my god, without my cell phone, what if an axe murderer comes out there and rapes me? What if, like, some poisonous snake comes out. I'm in Bali right now and I'm thinking I could go to the monkey forest. There's a literal jungle here. I'm like looking out at the jungle right now. I could spend the night in the jungle and I'm afraid that a boa constrictor is going to come and strangle me and I'm going to be bitten by a million mosquitoes. But also what you're saying makes sense to me. Like imagine if I was completely fearless about going into the jungle at night. That no matter what experience I have in there, when I leave in the morning, I'll be a changed person no matter what, if I survive. Right, and that's and there's no guarantee, and, and a lot of things in Magic 2, people kind of want that, they want to be in their, stay in their familiar. They, they, they wish so much for the unknown, the mystical, the magical experiences that they didn't have before, but at the same time, playing to everything that makes them feel safe. Uh, and if we go to the site, psychological model, that is a very, very big lesson in what do we really believe in, what do we truly appreciate, honestly, with ourselves. And it doesn't have to be 
the jungle or the forest, but placing ourselves in a place where we can't lie to ourselves anymore. We can't fall back on things that we know will comfort and protect us and everything. When it's, we only really get a glimpse of certain truths when those things are taken away. Um, and if we looked at such things like the Abermelon operation, that whole thing is designed to take that away, to get rid of what we've built up about ourselves and have some space, have some room for something that's new and unknown. Uh, and as people drawn to magic and everything, we got to somehow become intimately drawn and embrace of the unknown. So guys, please welcome again, Frater Ashen Chassan. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having me back. And uh, thank you for coming on. And as I mentioned, so many people were just like, where's part two? Where's part two? You know, like it was an hour and a half uh, interview and the full length interview, which was closer to, I think, two and a half, three hours. It was on my Patreon, but people were just dying to hear part two. So I was just like, all right, all right, let's have him back on. Because since we last talked, I've learned so much more about your magical practice. I read your book. This is Gateways Through Light and Shadow. Um, we did our interview when I was still in Bali, so I hadn't received this book yet. But now, look look at this, guys. Like, I kind of, I can do exercise with this book. It's so heavy. But also, I wanted to talk to you about this workshop that you're doing, a three-day in-person workshop in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. So lots of new things to talk about. The types of magical workings that you do. First of all, this is not something that a person can learn in a month or two. Let's just say right. flat out. I mean, we can read this book and be like, that'd be so cool. No, it's very obvious that it took you years and years. And also the way that you interact with the spirits, it's very different from the, I'll bind you and put you in a jar and you got to do what I say. It's not like that at all. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, definitely. So the, the workings, especially in the second book, came after um, evoking the seven planetary archangels by myself and kind of getting a feel of uh, just being in their presence. And uh, each one of the experiences and seeing them changed me in, in quite, a, quite a few ways. And it also led me from imagining what such encounters would be like to what they actually were. I actually uh, experience them and, and what it would be like conversing and being in the presence of, of these angelic beings, which uh, continue to amaze uh, every time that I get the opportunity to do that. A lot of it was uh, introducing my friend and, and my scryer to see if he could experience the same things that I was, and that, that was the joy of the book, was sharing all of those experiences with somebody who was right there with me, and a lot of times could see, hear them. Um, with more precision and, and information than I could. And it was just amazing. But, um, yeah, really coming into grips of, you know, what is the, the role of the magician? What can we do? Where does the, the ideals and the fantasy break into reality? And uh, once we accomplish, you know, actually being able to summon these beings, uh, what can we do with this? And this is something that uh, he and I talked about the years of the experiences that, that are in that book um, after each evocation that we did. And it changed us uh, quite a bit. And magic definitely can be used for practical ends. You can invite things into your life with 
the angels and, and other spirits. But I think regardless of which spirit you're working with, um, there does come responsibilities. There comes uh, changes in, in your person as you understand and get to experience more about how we're related to everything else in the world and where our place is in the cosmos. And uh, I think a lot of young magicians, especially ceremonial magicians, uh, get these kind of delusions of grandeur that, um, you know, if they can just summon such and such being, they can, you know, bind and control and, you know, have everything they want. And, uh, you know, it's amazing what you can get in your life, but it's also amazing about how the same human trappings of attachment of, of greed and these shortcomings and everything can still spurn on even as we're going through these very um, total spirit altering uh, uh, experiences. And uh, as I started getting more success um, in asking for various things, I would see things invited in, into my life, but um, I was always cautioned about um, understanding that, that this is for everyone and this is meant to assist people to work with other people um, in your life. And uh, I think if anybody got kind of fixated on one aspect, whether it was inviting more wealth or love or material or whatever it was, um, magically or not, it's the same kind of thing. It becomes an attachment, which kind of gets into Eastern philosophy a little bit if we're talking about Buddhism, but, but magic does not break that. I mean, it's it's a human condition. We can get everything we want, but uh, we'll end up just wanting more if that is at the core of, of why we're doing what we're doing, magically or otherwise. And uh, I think part of the maturity is um, understanding that even if you you can get these, these experiences of, of power, inviting things in that you want, um, the real power is, is understanding where that should be distributed and to what degree um, you want to have things in your life and, and how those things or people or circumstances, how much that's going to um, actually make you powerful instead of just make you dependent upon them. And uh, those factors um, are still there, you know, regardless of, of which spirit you're working with. And uh, even the angels cautioned, you know, us against that. And I think there's a lot of, building of, of your personality and a lot of learning that goes through this if you work um, earnestly and openly with, with these spirits and, and learn what they have to teach. And that becomes kind of a very important aspect. Otherwise, uh, it really does become one of those um, Mephistopheles things where the biggest devastation isn't going to be from a spirit attacking you. It's going to be the parts of your personality as a human being that um, becomes imbalanced um, or loses its power because of, of uh, desire and, and attachment to uh, things that you're trying to invoke into your life. You bring up a lot of Eastern concepts, this non-attachment and, you know, being at one with your environment. And in our last interview, we talked like for one second about you teaching martial arts. And since then, I've learned that you're a literal ninja. Like, <laughs> I remember when you first told me, I was just like, wait, ninja? As in like, you know? But you literally are a ninja and you have, and you teach ninjutsu at a dojo. 
So for those who are not sure, like they think of ninjas as, you know, the guys in black who are just like scurrying across and like throwing like ninja stars. Is, <laughs> is that what you do? We actually do train with the uh, shuriken and the, and the throwing stars and a lot of the, uh, the ancient weapons and, and traditional weapons. But yeah, it's a lot. Um, we have a lot of uh, modern applications that, that have come into it, along with the historical things that uh, we do. And um, my, the particular martial art that I teach is actually nine different families that involve uh, samurai styles and, and ninjutsu and, and martial arts that were uh, brought over from China and such. So there's quite a quite a lot that goes into it. Okay, this is what always fascinates me. When somebody who isn't Asian, like gets really into martial arts, not just like watching like Kung Fu flicks once in a while, but is teaching it. It's like part of what they do. Like what was it about ninjutsu or like th that particular type of martial arts that drew you? My mother put me in uh, to karate when I was like five, so I've been doing it for most of my life, but I always fascinated by ninja, and, and I was uh, kind of a child of the 80s, and uh, in America, there was like a, a ninja boom that happened in the, in the mid to late 80s, and all of these movies that at the time I thought were fantastic, they're cheesy now, but uh, they inspired me to, uh, to learn, and uh, yeah, the Japanese culture, and the, the weapons, and uh, everything was has just been a passion that um, I've always had and, and uh, continue to have. I was able to uh, study some other Japanese martial arts before uh, before I found my teacher in uh, ninjutsu, which is about 1999. And uh, since then, trained under him, and I was able to go to Japan to test for my last rank and um, had a chance in college to learn the language and um, more about the culture. And it's yeah, it's just another passion of mine that uh, has endured. And it seems as though your martial arts, it informs, I think in the interview that we did before, I was just like, well, that makes sense that you teach martial arts because what you do magically, there's so many parallels, the sort of like incremental increase of skill day by day, the discipline, you're always a student. How much of your martial arts goes into your magic? I say they the definitely complement each other. And even as far as a, a first um, kind of initiated magical or mystical experience was actually in my dojo in California when I was like 10 years old or something and uh, I ended up mirrors covered one one side of the wall and then I ended up staring at myself and um, we were in the middle of class but everything went away and I was just kind of fixated on, on looking at my reflection and, and marveling how Everybody else, um, I couldn't see them anymore. I could just see myself, and there's this big kind of white haze. And sound, everything else went away, and I was in this state. And um, somebody finally snapped me out of it, but they they looked really, um, a lot of them looked impressed. Some of them looked kind of scared. I don't know what I was doing. Uh, I doubt I was moving very much, but um, I'll always remember that experience. As my, my sensei told me after class that, you know, a lot of people try to do what you did their whole lives and they don't succeed. And I didn't know what that was, but uh, he said it in such a way that it, it stuck and, and made me think that um, uh, there's something that I tapped into that that was important. So it was kind of a uh, changing experience for me as well. Wait, but you were 10 being, years old. Uh -huh. You're like in martial arts class. All of a sudden, like you get into like like a, I guess it would be called like a fugue, right? It's like you don't remember what you did. Mm -hmm. But as a 10-year-old yeah, kid, trance or something. yeah, it's some sort of trance. 
and then you did something that you can't remember and unfortunately it wasn't like a parent had their iPhone out and could record what you were doing, but you did something that made your teacher remark that, you know, you did like next level stuff and then the other kids were just like, oh my God. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm imagining right now that you're doing some Spider-Man shit, you know? <laughs> no? I, I don't know. I just, I assumed I was just sitting very still with my eyes open. So I don't, I don't know what, um, what he saw or what they saw. What was so impressive. Um, I didn't, it's funny. I didn't ask too much about it afterwards. Cause I was just kind of, I didn't, I didn't know what I had done or what it was really about. I just thought it was really interesting. Martial arts has, has definitely been the, a huge focus on a way to really pinpoint my, my will, my concentration, and um, you know, put my mind and my body together so that you know I can accomplish uh, what I set my mind to. And um, later on in, in ninjutsu, especially, there's a very much a mystical, magical side to that, um, which I practice as well as kind of a, a separate but but integral thing. So um, I kind of have a balance of east and west. Uh, magical aptitudes that um, I'll turn, you know, turn into. I've noticed that most of my guests, um, these like professional experienced magicians, a lot of them do occupy that liminal space where they're doing something that is completely different. Like you were mentioning the ninjutsu. That's a very different tradition than Western ceremonial magic. I mean, literally East and West. Um, and also, like, the fact that you're doing something so physical and kind of, like, you know, like, athletic versus when I think of ceremonial magic, I'm not exactly thinking, oh, you're, like, breaking a sweat, like, lifting heavy things. <laughs> People, in some of it, um, you know, if, if they're new to it, they'll, they will be surprised because even in Western ceremonial magic, um, if you're doing it for real uh, in earnest, uh you're sitting or you're standing for hours on end in, in very concentrated forms. And, and if people are not used to doing that, uh, it can be difficult. It can be distracting. You can get, you know, intense in your body and, and get pains that can be very distracting. And, and that's part of it. It's definitely not as um, aerobic for sure, uh, but it can be physically demanding in, in other ways. If they're not used to, to sitting for long hours or focusing for long hours, standing for long hours, it, that's a, a challenge in its own, for sure. I think you also mentioned that there's like some sort of um, like a magical order that's like more ninjutsu based that you're also part of or doing. Connected with uh, historical ninjutsu, uh, there's kind of an uh, esoteric uh, Buddhist Buddhist Shinto uh, hybrid. It's uh, Mikyo, and um, a lot of the philosophical and, and spiritual and what they call Nien Po. Nien Po is the uh, interior philosophy and, and uh, deeper meanings and studies of um, the shinobi and that kind of idea that has a lot of cultural things. And that that's connected to kind of uh, magical practices and such that I do. The, they call the Kuji and the Kujian and Kujiki, which um, are derivatives of a lot of uh, the mudras and such that come from India. Mudras and, as in uh, hand? Yeah, Kuji, uh, Kuji, Kuji-in is the mudras in the hands. Kuji-kiri is, uh, is to cut, and it's uh, cutting patterns in the air, uh, starting off with kind of a nine-slash-grid and then being able to cut symbols effectively in the air, which is really interesting because 
in lodge ceremonial magic like the Golden Dawn, they, they cut uh, stars in the air, they cut pentagrams and glowing, um, but this practice is very much in, in the East as well with the Kujiki, and you're seeing it in the air before you much in, the, in a similar way. When you're doing, let's say, the Lesser Banishing Ritual, you know, you're, you're doing this, right? You're, you're doing this with, in the air. Are you doing, for the Kujiki and all that, are you doing that with a sword? Are you doing it with your fingers? Uh, it's usually with the fingers, but um, it's also traditionally done with a blade as well. And just like uh, you find in some of the West, and, and uh, as the Golden Dawn, it went from a sword to like a knife, and then uh, they started using the fingers with the Kuji, they would do uh, the one I can show. I can't show everything, but this would be the uh, the can coming out of the saya or the sheath um, this way from the right, and then this would be your sword, and you would cut with these two fingers would be the the can or the blade that you would work with. Guys, if you want to see Frater Chasan like doing his like sword thingies on his <laughs> Facebook page, calling <laughs> it sword thingies, on his page he actually has some videos up of him cutting through bamboo, dressed in like full like I'm guessing it almost looks like samurai. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, kimono, the yokata, we wear the, the traditional um, hakama and the, the kakuobi, and um, that's besides bujinkan uh, uh, and ninjutsu, I train in nishinru uh, yaijutsu, so the very traditional samurai um, sword drawing arts. Now, I used to be really obsessed with ninja swords. This is like this thing from my teenage years, you know, like my mom would complain about how I was obsessed with ninja swords. <laughs> I know. Awesome. Um, I was definitely a girl next door. Uh, so I do know that there's like eight ways of cutting, dealing with um, basically the Japanese style of swordsmanship. And it's very ritualized, like the way that you take the sword out of the scabbard, how you cut and how you put it back. Mm. It's kind of like a Japanese tea ceremony in that way. It's also a Japanese sword unsheathing and resheathing kind of mm -hmm. ceremony. And this reminds me very much of a lot of the rituals that are in magic. It is, yeah, you touched really on. There's, um, yeah, the, the hapo hikenjutsu, and there's actually a kata that is very much like a uh, banishing ritual, and that's kind of uh, what it's for when it's uh, performed, especially in yaijutsu, um, that eight myth of cutting is um, clearing out all the negativity uh, in such an area and going to each uh, point. So that's really cool that you brought that up because when uh, it was first shown to me, that was after I learned the, the banishing rituals of the, the pentagram and the hexagram, and I'm like, wow, that's very, that touches on some very similar points of what that's for. To me, when I hear stuff like that, like that there are such parallels between very geographically far and very, in, superficially at least, different modes of, you know, this is like martial arts and this is magic. And yet they both have sort of fundamentally the same, I would say, the same, uh, if not process, the same idea behind it, which is to cleanse, to provide some sort of ritual. This makes me really think like, well, there's something behind this technology of magic. Mm -hmm. There's something behind it that's not just some guy decided it'd be cool. Right. There's something about it. Yeah, and even um, when it comes to uh, evocation and, and ceremonial magic, of, like Solomonic magic and, and calling up spirits and such, um, learning from uh, Dr. Stephen Skinner, 
he pulls the parallels between the Taoist magicians and uh, the, you know, the magicians of nowadays or the ceremonial magicians of uh, the medieval times and the, the technology, like you said, it's easily, it's, it's so similar. There's the registries, you have to know the direction and uh, the ways to call the, the spirits by evoking and uh, invoking, calling upon the higher gods or spirits above them. And uh, he really remarks how many similarities there are. And uh, for that tradition, it's really neat because in a lot of ways, it's, it's been unbroken since in the East, um, magic has, especially in a lot of areas, been uh, accepted and, and continues to go since you know it was invented. And it's neat to be able to see that how it's a continued practice and a continued technology, and uh, really resounds with um, even the ways that it started being done in the West. What a coincidence that you started off in martial arts, and that was like your your moment, you know, that time when you were ten years old. So it just seems as though because this book as well, um, this nice the big blue book, as I like to call it. Oh, that big blue book. <laughs> It goes into some of your history. Like, I don't want to say it's an autobiography, but you talk a little bit about your life in this book. There's a lot of crazy stuff that's happened in your life. Like, <laughs> There's some interesting experiences. <laughs> right. Like, things that definitely, like, if I experienced it, I, I'm not sure how I would have been able to explain it away in my atheist days. Or even if I were into more magical thinking, I would have really considered like, what is going on? This can't be reality. So there's this one part um, where you talk about you and the weather. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to, to share part of that. And uh, I had actually written a lot of that a long time before the, the uh, circumstances and the experiences of the, the book took place. Um, it was something I had typed down and decided to include um, later because I really saw how they kind of matched up with uh, especially the, the Jupiter angel and some of these um, experiences that um, I started to have. So right, I would say right after my, my years in junior high, entering into high school, um, a lot of magical things were, were happening to me. I was... Um, experiencing all sorts of, of strange things. And uh, some of my friends happen to be present for, for some of these circumstances. And uh, to paint a better picture, my high school was backed up and there was a lot of forest behind and we were, it's, it's in a really pretty spot. There's mountains right behind and you can walk, or you could walk, it's all developed now, unfortunately, but you could walk through the forest to eventually get to my house, which was further up uh, this mountain that was about uh, maybe like five miles away or something. But I used to walk uh, to and from school a lot of times just through the woods. But um, at one point, um, as I was getting interested in, in magic, um, I found that um, I had a real big connection to the weather. And I even read some things about how to uh, influence or manipulate the weather, and, and I wanted to try to see if, if anything could happen. Uh, there, there's a lot of circumstances that, that led up to this, but um, I ended up being kind of gifted my very first wand. Um, I had this neat experience of walking home uh, one day, and it was hot, and um, I looked up at this one, I think it was like a, it was a really big scrub oak or something, and I noticed this branch. It was a different color, and it just looked weird, and as I looked, the thing fell 
off of the tree. It didn't like snap or anything. It just kind of fell off into my hand. And to me, this was a very magical experience. So I had, you know, this wand and it became, uh, my first real magical tool. And, uh, with that, um, I didn't have any instruction. I didn't have access to the grimoires and, and, uh, other, uh, texts like I do now. So a lot of it was just experimenting with my imagination. Uh, but I found that if I could get up high enough, uh, and really put, I guess my intention and also almost my feeling too, not just thinking about it, but almost as if I had, uh, a way to extend myself and just feel the atmosphere above me. Uh, if I started moving my hands uh, in tune with uh, what I was feeling, uh, the winds would pick up. Uh, winds would come out and then clouds would roll in if I kept doing that. And um, if I kind of focused it and everything, clouds would actually gather over one point that I was looking at from you know the uh, top or the side of this mountain. And uh, I had some pretty wild experiences of, of being able to control the winds very effectively. And it, it was something out of the movies. It didn't seem like it should be real. But um, uh, I don't remember if I put this part in my book or not. I don't, I don't think I did. But because um, I, I guess I should say some of the experience uh, for people who want to read the book. But uh, I was feeling pretty high on myself in, in my teenage years, trying to explain some magical things to uh, my parents, my mom, because she was a little bit more open that way, even though my dad had more uh, spiritual experiences. But we were in the car, and um, I was, my brother and my mother were in the car, and I was telling them about, you know, like, hey, I can, I can work some of the weather. And she's like, Brian, nobody has that power. You know, only God has that power. I'm like, well, what if I can make it rain? <laughs> and she was just quiet. She gave me this look. And uh, I don't know. I guess I was just feeling the magical power that day because I gave her this look and I put my hand out the window. And within the five minutes, it began to rain. And it was raining, you know, harder and harder. And, and my brother gave me this kind of look that he's like, you need to stop that. And they, look, they looked a little frightened. But she's like, uh, she's like, we've you know had some thunderstorms. So I was like, well, would you like me to make it stop? And I, with through a technique that I would do of just kind of almost feeling like I was carrying something heavy and then pushing it back up to the sky and repeating this process, the rain would lessen and lessen, and then it stopped in under five minutes. And uh, I remember she's like, Brian, you're freaking me out. <laughs> but it was kind of this vulgar, I guess, the display, and it was funny. Um, how in my teenage years, there's, there's a lot of things that um, I would do, and even in front of uh, friends and people who would be around. But, um, you know, it came to that point of, um, you know, this is me, but I would try to limit when I would do things like that. And when uh, it would be more of a feeling, too, I could tell when I was connected to it and, and that things would make sense when I would put my will into it. And then at times where I didn't feel it and I wouldn't even try. Uh, anybody who has not seen that directly or experienced that uh, wouldn't believe it all and probably shouldn't because I wouldn't. <laughs> Unless if I had not experienced it for myself, I don't think I would believe it at all. So um, it's one of those things that uh, yeah, it was quite, quite interesting growing up. And in the book, you tell 
another story as well, which I think everybody should read because I remember after reading this story about you and your friend and about Rain, mm -hmm. I think I was just like, okay, I gotta ask Frater Chasson about this because it sounds like something out of Fantasia, that movie. We're talking a lot about the maturity of a magician and the experience and building up. And you've used the word vulgar, like a vulgar display to talk about this. Sort of like, oh, let me just kind of like, as you said, I was feeling myself, you know, so I just <laughs> made it rain and then I made it stop. I'm wondering why you chose those words. I, I say that, yeah, the, the act of power just for the sake of display or show, I mean, um, like even in martial arts, it'd be one of those things that you mature, mature better. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the one thing that I have learned about magic, especially now, and I didn't even realize as much then, was uh, that, yeah, certain amazing things can be done, but um, the reality of magic versus the fantasy is that you can't make something come out of nowhere. You don't get something for nothing. Uh, if you're going to move the weather, you're pulling it from some other place that it was intended on going. Uh, if you're drawing something into your life, if you're drawing wealth, if you're drawing love, you have to understand you're taking it from somewhere else, from someplace else. To, there's not just this, this power, these things that are just sitting idly or being in stasis just waiting for you to pull. Um, everything is always moving. Energy is always moving. So when you change that, when you move it, you are taking it, you're redirecting it, you're doing something. And uh, you can look at it as that butterfly effect, so to speak, um, and you don't have to be that dramatic. And the reality is we can't even see all ends, um, all threads that those are pulling when we manipulate something magically. But it does nonetheless, and just because we can't see it um, doesn't mean that we're excluded from any kind of responsibility. And that's not the... To get into the Wiccan read, or, or to say that you know, things will come back and be threefold, or anything this, because that's an oversimplification. It doesn't always work that way either. Um, people, in a general magician or not, some people do horrible things, and the effects that we would almost appropriate to them, um, that we would wish happened to them, it doesn't always happen that way. If my area would experience drought, and if it experiences droughts um, too well, I, I will do something to try to help um, the place where I live. It, it felt like a responsibility as a magician, but um, always and each and every time you'd see something going on in another place of uh, the country, especially, that uh, would have to suffer for it. And even though I could wish it away and say, well, that's not directly for my doing, and that's, that's not my responsibility or not my fault, um, I, I think that's more wishful thinking and, and understanding that, yeah, I could have had a hand out. Other people or other animals, other plants are, are suffering because something was taken. Um, so just kind of having that awareness, I think, is, is important. And uh, it does become vulgar sometimes when um, even if any kind of great power that's used indiscriminately and, and um, without any regard for anything else, uh, can be vulgar regardless of intention. What you're bringing up is something that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, which is we are in an ecosystem of energy. So as you mentioned, it's not like, you know, when you think about the laws of, I think it's thermodynamics, energy isn't created or destroyed, it just changes form. So when you're bringing in, maybe even if you're bringing in like what you think is a simple love magic, 
I mean, you are manipulating energy. So that energy, it could have gone somewhere else, maybe to someone else or something else, but now it's coming to you. And that doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just, that's just the way it is, right? Because we're all part right. of an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I wonder if the mature magician then is the reason why, you know, like you're, they oftentimes the mature magician doesn't use their power, this great power that they have to make like a million dollars appear in their bank account or something like that. Is it because of that? It's because they understand that the price for that million dollars may be more than they're willing to pay. Maybe better switching from money. Uh, a part that's in, in my book is is a time where my city was like literally on fire. Um, there's the smoke was so thick it stung your eyes. You couldn't breathe. You couldn't see. Um, it uh, it killed people. It wiped out millions of dollars worth of housing. It was it was a state of emergency, um, and it was something that um, I did magic for. I was like, we need to stop this. Uh, you know, we need water, and you know, the spirits were very pointed. It was like. I know this looks big to you now, but you have to understand that what you're calling for is like the, I think the uh, analogy that was used one of the spirits was something about dumping a lake on a campfire, um, you know, sort of thing. And, and uh, but even with that, it was like almost in a state of disbelief of like, you know, okay, whatever, but you know, we'll, I'll take the flood now because we got to change the situation. And it's, it's, it's was really a lesson on, perspective, a limited perspective, and, and being able to understand and then responding emotionally something instead of being able to have um, a wider view of, of everything that's going on, uh, because we ended up getting floods, and it was almost more devastating than the fires, and um, it was something that I had to really, you know, acknowledge of, you know, wow, this, look at what I was involved in, and uh, and that's where it it really came into focus, especially with, with the being talking to me one-on-one -on -one about this. About, um, yeah, you have this ability and, and you can ask for this, but you know you have to be aware of, of everything that you're affecting because of what you're doing. Yeah, even with with love magic or anything that you do, and it's, it's not to um, keep people from doing things. I think magicians, if they're really called to do that, um, you're going to manipulate. It's it's for practical ends. You you pull strings on purpose, but you do have to realize that is what you're doing and, and trying to wish it away or come up with another philosophy. I think is is blindsiding. Um, but um, just trying to be very um, as wary as you, you can be and as, as intelligent as you can be about what is it that you're asking for? Because in so many modern magic books, the good ones. In um, some place, it's stated that you know a lot of times it's not a spirit attacking you or doing things. It's it's asking for something stupid, <laughs> you know, asking for the wrong things in, in the wrong way. Not um, you're not uh, using your magic appropriately and wisely. So it's like any skill, any kind of power. If you don't know how to apply it, apply it properly in the right circumstances, then it's not going to serve you. Um, the way that you'd hoped it would. And uh, I think that's still one of the biggest lessons in magic, for sure. So what you're bringing up right now is this underline of like the fantasy versus reality of magic. And in our last interview, you talked about how real magic, it affects real life, and therefore it is by its nature dangerous and not to be sure. taken lightly. And I think that's kind of a 
it kind of bums people out to hear that. <laughs> but first of all, magic is not there to make you feel good. Because a lot of people think that magic is done to get you more money, to get you that perfect guy, to, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's to... And it can assist, but sometimes it, it takes a, a reassessing and a, a re-evaluating um, magic, changing us in a way that we can um, perceive properly. Because a lot of times the, the images we have in our head are so um, off-kilter that we we think we want something a certain way, um, but we really don't. And, and it, it doesn't even look that way. And it's like... You know, getting getting that that perfect guy. You know, what does that look like? What does he about stuff? Well, that's another person. <laughs> it's another human being, and uh, they have their own destiny and everything. So, you know, bringing that in there, and if if what they're about is not, um, you know, in your best chemistry or however you would grow, I mean, you can imagine it all you want, but it's going to go very differently because it's still reality. It's it's not the fantasy in your head, and uh, I think. With a lot of that, there there's a lot of moderation too um, within the spiritual world. Even as people are able to affect things, uh, there's counterbalances and there's there's beings that that do keep things in check. A teenage kid that uh, wants to summon Satan in his basement for the first time, <laughs> you know, he lights the candles and he calls to his balloon's face, but you know, nothing happens. Well, nothing happens for a very good reason because there's some checks and balances, and he doesn't have the aptitudes to to do that, and he doesn't even have the right perception about what that entails. He has a fantasy in his head about what he thinks that is, but luckily, for his case, it doesn't match um, reality of magic and, and the, the proper components to make things happen. Um, I think a lot of times when people meet frustration in magical practice, when things don't go uh, the way they want, it's, it's because uh, the schism between the imagination and fantasy versus the actual aptitudes and, and mechanisms of magic. But then I'm thinking a lot of people are getting into magic right now because they want to be able to be like, well, I need this to happen. I need that to happen. And so they're doing magic. And if it doesn't work, then it's sort of like, what's the point of doing magic? It kind of makes magic sound as though if you're doing it, to get stuff, then you're going to be disappointed, so don't even bother. Whoops. My hair. Um, but at the same time, that's, you know, like, I got into magic because I was like, I want some money. And I got <laughs> some money. And that's why I kept doing it. But mm -hmm. I've said it again and again. The moment that I feel as though magic doesn't work for me and it doesn't give me benefits, then I'm not going to do it, you know? So what does that mean? Let's be real here. What do you think that means? Yeah, because it's a, the same thing for practical ends. I mean, you do a spell and, and uh, or a magical working, and if you know people get the results, and if you get positive results, then yeah, you do it again. And it definitely works, um, you know, irregardless of a person's belief. And that's definitely not what I'm getting at. Is that you know the belief? I think magic in the in the greater scheme and everything when it doesn't match the the fantasy and you know something short circuits. Um, it's their expectations or I guess the way that they're trying to view that is, is way off. But, um, yeah, I mean, countless people, you know, you do the, the money magic and everything and then, you know, you can get some viable results and it's neat to see that do the same thing. But I think when people want those greater things, and for me, it usually touches on experiencing spirits in, in a dynamic way, whether they be the angels 
um, or God forms or, or having this pretty relatively um, huge experience. Sometimes, I mean, the weather magic can be one, even though people can do something simple and get weather changes. And then those are another things. But like in everything, I think it's a matter of degree, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And um, sometimes these failures and such can um, really denote us if somebody is um, doing magic or if they're on the path to be a magician, two different things. Uh, just because somebody does magic uh, doesn't entitle them to be a magician, I don't think. Uh, being a magician or being an adept or whatever cultural term, um, I think is someone that, um, and to, to take in martial art, the master is somebody that has failed more times than you have tried. That's a nice way <laughs> to see him. And uh, I always, I think back to my own failures, uh, which I've had some big ones where nothing has happened. And um, I was frustrated and in tears, but I kept going. And I think about like my scryer, um, Ben, who's one of the most amazing magicians and seers. I mean, his experiences are unlike anybody else's that I know. But he had a whole year, a whole year where he was doing prayers and petitions to uh, these gods and these beings, and he got nothing, nothing, uh, and nothing in return. Uh, you couldn't tell if anything was working at all. Uh, but it was a test, and I said everybody else would have been like, that's oh, not working, scrap it, maybe try something else, move on to a different system, or just scrap magic altogether. But he's one of those masters that he he's like, this is who I am, I'm doing it anyway. And he did, and then he made that breakthrough, and, and now he's very much a master. And to me, that's, that's who the magician, these people who really do the work, they're the ones that have done it. Failure or not, they keep going. And they keep doing one of my um, students who did drawing spirits and the crystals. I mean, he put everything into it. He had failure after failure, but he kept going and, and pushed through. And, and he's doing amazing work now. Not just in magic, but you see that in a lot of, I think, um, skills and aptitude. Um, people can kind of try this or that, but the, the people who are really doing this and living it, they're the ones that, um, that push through uh, the difficulties in these times where there's no evidence that that it's working at all. And just to underline, you've been doing magic, like you've been practicing, not just reading about it, but practicing magic for decades. And it took a while before you were able to get this level, like it took you decades to get to the level where you can write this big blue book. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, reading it and being like, well, obviously, if I were able to get the results that you get, there would be zero skepticism left in my mind because I trust my firsthand experience. But to get to that point would require, as we mentioned in the previous interview that we did, uh, a lot of faith in yourself and also in magic. There is. I mean, uh, I'm not sure exactly what, I mean, I guess faith, yeah, that, that driving point. Uh, because of you, before I got to the experiences that that book and then my first one, um, I had seen spirits, so I, I wasn't starting off, um, you know, completely with a blank slate or, or having no mystical experiences. So I, I didn't know spirits existed, but I really wanted to know if angels did or if they, they existed in the capacity or if I could see and converse with them like these magical books said. That was my, my sole foundation of, of, of practicing it. I just really wanted to have that experience. And um, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of... Um, practice and 
and setting everything up. And I didn't know for sure until it happened. And then, you know, after having that experience and then multiple experiences, um, you know, it was fantastic. But again, it's, it's a maturing process. It goes from the wow, you know, is this even real? Does this even work to yes, it's real and it works. Now what? What are you going to do with it? Um, just do you need that entertainment? Just that, you know, that reminder that, you know, you can do cool stuff. Um, are you just going to make everything great in, in, in your life to make sure that you have wealth, love, and, and all of these practical things, which is a part of it. And there's, you know, I hope people never get the idea that those things should not be asked for. They, that's what magic is for, is to get those needed practical things. Um, but again, that's not the end of the story. Then, then what, what are you going to do? You know, cause hopefully you can get enough where you can sustain. Otherwise you get into a lost cycle. Like we said, of always wanting something more or something bigger. Um, and then that's especially the second book through like, you know, what are you going to do with this information? What do you, um, plan to do with these experiences? And it's, it's about sharing. It's about how can I help? How can I make things better? How can I change things to, even from my limited perspective, uh, to give people to share that power, to share that, those experiences and, and, uh, have them blossom as they will in other people's lives. That reminds me so much of like, like even like rap songs, you know, of like these rappers who are just like, you know, I have fame now I have money, but why do I feel so fucking empty? You know, like I don't have real friends. Oh, my hair, it keeps getting into my lip. My lip gloss is too sticky. Um, why do I have no friends? How come these, these girls, they just want me for, like, my money, but I don't have real love? And then they start to question life. But it's only after they get the Lambo, after they get all the riches and material stuff, then they can go next level. So I think for me, I just want to impress upon the audience, like, if you're doing magic for material gains, go for it right? That's the stage you're at now. But realize that there's a stage beyond that. And that's what, I guess, in a way, you're kind of at that point, because you've been doing it for so long. So you're at that stage where it's like, what's beyond just the, just the human sort of like gaining and, and accumulating of materials? And I go back to Dr. Skinner, he talks about that, you know, as well, too, because people ask, well, you know, do you do magic, you know, for, um, spiritual ascension or to become this great person. I was like, no, magic is for, you know, these practical ends and, you know, getting stuff done, which is very true. It's just like martial arts. <laughs> martial martial wars, you train to be able to kill somebody or to keep from being killed. I mean, case in point, that's what it's for. But um, it's always about, just like you said, do you stop there? It's, it's a lot like these ring fighters and some of the the UFC guys going into a couple things. You can be a great fighter, but your life can be a wreck and you eventually age and you're eventually not going to be all that strong. And then it always comes up with that question. Well, now what, you know, how, how do we keep going? And then, you know, in the East, especially because you have warrior arts that have endured a very long time, it's, you know, after the battle, well, now what I've had these horrible experiences. I'm alive, but can I make life better or am I just going to be fighting a battle all the time? And that's how these, these things of, yeah, they, they work for, they're for practical things for martial arts to keep you alive and to have somebody else not be alive. But you know, is there something beyond that? Is there something beyond your magic? If you can get things going in your life that way, excellent. Then what, you know, what are you going to use this for? Is it just for yourself? Um, you know, for your family, 
if we're talking historically, well, what did the ancient magicians do? Well, they were servants for their community. You can talk about any kind of culture, whether it's for the shaman, uh, the priests of Egypt, the good ones of the, the Catholic and other Christian priests as they did, uh, the Druids and the ancient Celtic culture, they served a function within their community, and that function was to be the mediator and the moderator between the seen and unseen worlds and to better their community, to better their culture, to have other people besides themselves thrive and be a professional in, in that aspect. And, you know, that's that reoccurring theme that you see cross-culturally. Speaking of how to perhaps work towards getting a spirit to work with you, uh, so you're going to do a in-person workshop in Colorado Springs in, I think, June, beginning weeks of June? Uh -huh, yeah, the first weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and June. Okay. So, I'm very curious to know what people are going to learn in this 3D workshop, because, I mean, we're talking a lot about I think kind of abstract things right now, you know, the maturity of a magician, you know, like your personal experience, but it's like, okay, somebody's just like, I'm sold. Like this magic path, I understand there are no guarantees. I may not be genetically fit to be like the most adept of the adepts, but this is something that I'm committed to trying and committed to doing for a period of time. I'm drawn to it. So they decide, all right, I'm going to go to Fratichasan's workshop three days in person, Colorado Springs, by the way, weed, totally legal there recreationally, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so they go, then what, what are they going to learn? Day one, day two, day three. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to give away all the secrets, but I, <laughs> I will say that, um, the, it's going to be based on the, the workshop I just gave in the UK in, in October. And I had people that were brand new to magic, and I had people that had been doing magic for a long time. And uh, the whole thing went excellent, and, and I got great feedback from everybody involved. And uh, the idea is that we really covered the gimmick about how, you know, how to be a ceremonial magician. Well, what do you need to do? And you know, besides um, all my materials and everything, I really broke down the essential components about, you can read about this or that, but how are you, you going to start doing the work? And uh, the way that I took it was, well, if you cross culturally and you look at you know, the role of the magician about what they did is that one of the biggest components that they had to be able to understand consecration in the widest respect and in the most narrow respect. How do you, how do you make something sacred a part of, from something and then make it specific for something else? And uh, I talk about the three main divisions uh, or I guess categories of ceremonial magic and I actually work from all those three categories and that's uh, uh, a sacramental uh, ordainship uh, path of magic where um, from the Egyptians um, on through into the Greeks and to the, the Catholics in modern day uh, they were priests, the magicians were priests that fulfilled uh, the magical workings doing these practical things contacting various spirits or deities and binding them and, and uh, manipulating things to get practical things done, because that's what you see. Uh, and also lodge magic, which developed later, but where we have the Golden Dawn and, and the OTO and these other uh, ways of uh, doing magic that has developed that I've learned as well, and, and um, how to contact, how to do consecrations and empowerment and contacting spirits through that model. 
and then also for uh, folk and um, rural magic and everything where you have your witches and your cunning men and cunning women and people that serve the community in that aspect also contacted spirits and, and did magic in that regard. And uh, these um, three uh, methods, uh, blurred and, and interwoven, uh, connected and separated throughout the years in, in many different categories. And you see that even in the grimoires and these other books, and I go into that, but I give people kind of um, practices on each and people are working. It's not me just sitting up there talking. Um, I get people to work on magic. Here's your salt. Here's your water. We're going to make holy water, blessed holy water. Now that we have this blessed holy water, we have this blessed oil. Now that we have these things that we've done magically, we're going to bless these implements. And we go into the elements. Well, here are these tools that you can use for elements. You consecrate them this way. And now we're going to contact the elemental realms and I take everybody through these magical journeys and astral voyages, not guided imageries, like we're actually doing some contact and some working within the elemental realms and the exercises that I've used, I continue to use. And the neat thing is that they're the um, techniques that I did with my scryer to bring him through the elemental realms. Because in the beginning of the book, um, as you know, before we contacted these archangels, I had him go through the four elemental gateways and contact and talk to the elemental kings and, and work through that way before we did that. And essentially I'm taking a class on a very similar journey and everybody's sort of having some amazing um, experiences, especially in the UK. And uh, we can definitely expect that in Colorado. And then, oh, what is it like to be a scryer? What is it like to be an operator, the magician? And what is it like to make a magical circle and have this space? Um, I also teach very quick practical magical methods that um, I use for mudras, um, the main aspects, the, the thought word and deed, um, doing magical mudras and then saying things, these very classical kind of spells, but it, it immediately being able to call up uh, very powerful intentionalities for protection, for centering for breathing, for increasing magical and uh, magical and physical energy, uh, for being able to guard against things or to open up gateways between the worlds. Um, so all of these methods I'm teaching people to do something that they can do right then and there that they're going to be doing. And uh, what I've loved since the UK, since October, is getting emails saying, hey, I've been practicing what we did in the workshop and these are the experiences I'm having now. So um, the three days are, are packed full of uh, basically the most essential and what I would still say the, the kind of bread and butter, uh, most powerful magical techniques that you know I continue to use and Jason uses and Aaron uses and a lot of these other magicians. I know the, the same kind of um, things, but in a very, um, I guess in a very clear way that especially people are getting all this different information and they just don't know how to begin. Um, this is the way to begin, so you can start doing it. So would you say that this would be appropriate for a more advanced magician as well? Yes, and that's why I said like some, even in England, I had some very advanced magicians that had been doing this stuff a long time, and, and they knew a lot of these things were not um, new to them, but working them in this uh, particular way or working with these other people have been new to them. Um, 
And what I loved is some people that were brand new to magic, they were able to pick it up and and uh, have experiences right off the bat, which is really neat. So, um, yeah, people of all different, um, along the scales in their magical practice, I think can definitely get something out of that. What sort of intention should somebody have if they're taking your class? The intention would be, if you're interested in magic, um, be interested to, to come into practice and to do, and to, to be open to um, experiencing the techniques and the things that we will be doing um, as openly as you can and, and enjoy the experience for um, everything that you can while you're there. Because um, I think that's when people really um, started going in the classes is when we were able to open up and, and we started engaging and working through this because uh, they're going through exercises even ones they may be familiar with, but uh, I'm working as a magician. I'm also working as a hypnotherapist. I'm using my will and my voice, and I'm tapping into everybody that's in the room. That's right. You are a hypnotherapist, or like you've gone through some crazy hypnotherapy training, like from a very young age. Uh, may I just say that many of people have tried to hypnotize me. I am unhypnotizable. <laughs> that's what they all say. <laughs> I can almost see like it's like a meme. Can Frederick Chasson hypnotize Chawa? <laughs> just me trying really hard not to be hypnotized. There's all kinds of different techniques to get people who um, are kind of resistant and everything into that state of mind. But the neat thing is that if some people wonder, like, well, I don't think I can be in that state. Everybody can be in that state because it's a normal faculty of human consciousness. And I tell people that, well, have you ever driven a car and you found yourself going somewhere you didn't mean to or you arrived quicker than you did? You know, this kind of thing, that's a state of hypnosis. And uh, I always explain hypnosis that way from, you know, if you want the level of the mind, think back to when you're first driving, when everything was brand new and you're complete waking consciousness because it's almost dangerous to when, if you're used to something, if you get in that mind, your, your mind will go elsewhere. And hypnosis, or somebody who's hypnotizing you, they're just guiding that particular, you know, natural function of your mind because usually it just, it's lazy and it wanders off and goes wherever. But uh, it's powerful if it can be directed towards a goal, towards something. And that's what uh, hypnosis is. And uh, depending on the level, it's just practice. But everybody has those faculties, those abilities. So. <laughs> this is making me think that this workshop, it's not just um, learning and doing all these magical practices, but because you have a hypnotherapy background, that's almost in a way like next level. You're like really embedding a lot of these, I guess, these uh, practices inside a person's mind. I give them full disclosure ahead of time that um, the trick is to be able to harness, like if you weave your fingers in certain patterns, it doesn't mean anything on, on its own. The, the being able to call the magic is that it has a very uh, ingrained response and direct thought counterpart that helps you manifest something to happen. You have to have uh, a conduit, a line of intentionality to protection, to causality uh, for magic to happen. And to be able to build that, it takes practice, it takes an ingraining, and it being, you have to basically embed um, these concepts into that deeper part of the mind. That's how they work. So if you say something, like you say like a spell in Latin, 
as you're doing you know, these finger patterns, if it starts to mean something very poignantly, as soon as you do that, the effect happens, and that's how magic happens. And through hypnosis and through some of these um, techniques that I use for people, um, I'm able to kind of give them that if they're ready and if they're ready uh, and willing to accept that. And I tell people that during the workshop, and some people get ex excited. They're like, yes, and they reach that point, we practice that, and if it fits and we, um, we do these exercises, it's neat because I can see when it starts to work for people. And now, all of a sudden, when they say something and they do something with their hands, they're doing magic. Something is happening, and it's happening dynamically. Now they can do, quote-unquote, this spell or this uh, certain magical technique, and it's working exactly as it's supposed to because that conduit is cleared up to go from point A to point B without anything blocking it in the middle. And sometimes that block is hesitation, skepticism, it's randomness, it's whatever you want that is killing the power of, of that um, magical technique. And working at it is being able to clear that away so that you have these tools that you can harness in an instant. Because if you need to protect yourself magically, spiritually, and you have to do it right then, you don't have time to be skeptical or mess around or wonder if, if you're powerful enough to get it done. You have to do it. And this is what I want for people. This is really exciting because I'm just imagining, okay, like when you're in an in-person workshop or in-person mentorship with somebody, a teacher, um, you're getting that transmission from them just by being in their presence. That's just, you know, every major religion, everybody knows that, you know, being in the presence of a real living teacher that does something to you. And then you've got the hypnotherapy thing going on, the hypnosis thing going on. So then naturally my mind, which is always looking for life hacks, is like, is that a way to like hack your way into becoming better at magic, doing hypnotherapy or like hypnotizing yourself? I used it. Um, and uh, yeah, hypnosis and, and those uh, techniques are definitely um, a technology that I use to um, I say kind of, um, yeah, jailbreak part of my mind and everything to actually have the, uh, experiences that I've had to be able to see things, uh, especially some spiritual phenomena and some other things, um, unless you have the natural blueprint or the ability, um, for a lot of people, it's just about impossible or it's very, very difficult. And it's not until the brain is really able to the, the deeper part of the uh, subconscious able to accept and sometimes decode or um, translate certain energies so that you can actually perceive them. Um, it's pretty much the only way to do that. So for me, that's one of the biggest things um, that I did early on to be able to get to that next level. Like you know that my mind is scheming when all of a sudden I'm like playing with my hair. I'm just like, hey, you know, <laughs> this sounds like, okay, this is one of the first times I'm really hearing about hypnosis used to get that makes perfect sense because magic is a mindset you know like like you said you could be doing all these motions but it's the mindset that makes it magical so if you can actually bypass the conscious logical rational mind and go straight into your subconscious which is that's where the magical happens right spirits and magic and, and such they're always there but having the blueprint to actually uh, to perceive them in, in um, an understandable way as in seeing and hearing them and, and having them appear or, you know, being aware, uh, even in feeling, having, having those things being activated is, you know, if you're not born with that or if you don't have the, uh, the training or even the kind of cultural influence 
uh, in some place, then um, yeah, they're not going to be perceptible. It's going to be very difficult um, to get to that point. And um, it's a whole other story. But that uh, when I took anthropology, um, I learned a lot about that. Was about a guy that went down there to view an exorcism, and it was down in the Philippine jungles or something like that. And long story short. Um, you know, he was seeing this boy during this exorcism and everything, and all of a sudden this wind picked up and it broke a branch and it kind of crashed out on the hut and everybody was kind of yelling and screaming, but that's all he saw. But he interviewed uh, the tribes people before they talked to each other and everything, and he all described seeing this spirit, this kind of dragon-looking creature, and it moved here and then it broke the branch and came, or it came out of the boy and broke the train and then, you know, went and, and flew off in this direction and they all pointed to the same way. And, they, he was pretty convinced they saw the same thing because they didn't, you know, collaborate or anything. And but he didn't see it. And, and um, he wrote about, you know, he wasn't raised in that culture. He didn't have. He didn't. He basically didn't have the blueprint in order to to perceive. It was not part of his um, perception of reality. And, and you know, anybody involved in psychology or psychiatry and everything, they understand how much the mind is is not necessarily creating the reality, but it does create the reality that you can perceive. If you can't, if you don't know it, you can't see it. And if you don't know it, you can't hear a touch, taste, or have an, an idea that something's there a lot of times. Like what Donald Rumsfeld said, I think. There's things that we know, there's things we know we don't know, and then there's things we don't know that we don't know. Right. <laughs> I can't right. believe I'm, I'm quoting him, but that just reminded <laughs> me of that. What are three songs that describe you best as a magician. Last time we couldn't get to it because, you know, like technical issues and stuff. But we're here now. <laughs> Prodigy song, what are the three songs? Oh man, and I think I had three uh, chosen before and I have to remember uh, thinking back because in so much of my magical working, it's, you know, I have songs playing, but there's, there's music that uh, I appreciate. So now I have to really, I have to think on that, like, uh, is Magic Man a horror? That's got to be a cliche. That's horrible. Thing to say. <laughs> we, we just keep it real. If, that, if that's you, that's you. <laughs> With the Magic Hand. No, uh, I'll pick a different one. That, that's that's really bad. Um, um, it's almost a, a cliche, but I, maybe it's the interaction with the the angels. But some of the um, some of the chant, maybe uh, the Gregorian, or even like. Uh, a sanctus or something because of the uh, the pitch and, and the familiarization of I guess how that the music makes me feel and, and, and being in the presence of some of these beings I remember the first time I heard this kind of chant and and in there um, it, it bypassed my reservations and, and the problems I had with Christianity as a whole, um, what I had learned in my skepticism with all the, the religions and, and the things I didn't like about it and what people had said about it and um, um, those kind of thought patterns and all of that was just kind of set aside and, and I appreciated without even knowing the, the words and everything and, and what it was all saying and, and just uh, reveling in, in the beauty of what I was experiencing, even if I didn't uh, have a total understanding of what that was, again, like what I was saying and everything was just beautiful and, and appreciating it for, as I was experiencing it right then and there, and, and I guess that was very much like some of these angelic 
um, experiences that I that I had that you know I had all these expectations or these ideas or, or things that I thought were supposed to be or whatever and all of that when I love the experiences when when all that is cleared away and you just appreciate an experience for whatever it is and then you don't have any judgment or or feedback or thought about it you just kind of immersed in it and um, I really like those experiences so music that kind of touches me on that I don't know if it's as much about me as as much as the experience I wish I had three better songs or, or <laughs> titles and artists directly but um, um, yeah I don't know I'll have to give it some more thought. <laughs> I can definitely see Gregorian chants or that sort of, like monks chanting. Like I'm envisioning like the monks in the robes, like their faces hidden and they're in a cathedral and it's very, it has that nice sort of like uh, reverb and they're chanting and they're speaking to God. Yeah. There's another one, a different uh, tradition. It, it's been on Facebook but uh, a similar kind of feeling, and it was a funerary song in, I think, Norway uh, or something. And it was uh, a woman and guys, it was like a whole group. Uh, I wish I remembered the name and everything, but um, it's been posted on Facebook. Uh, a couple times, and they were singing like a funerary song. Again, I didn't know the words, but it was just hauntingly beautiful and uh, I remember being kind of wrapped up in that music and there's something that that touched um, right around my heart area as well about it being it was something that was ancient and it was something that connected to all people because there was kind of um, uh, there was a sorrow and kind of a way of saying goodbye you could kind of hear that in their tonality but there's also a power of you know hearing the the culture and the tradition and, and uh, the power of the people kind of come through the words. And I love when, when I kind of get um, all of that through a song or through music because I think it contains so many elements that way. What a coincidence that, you know, you're like a grimoire traditionalist and the songs that you're bringing up are old school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old school in so many things. <laughs> I'm definitely not the hippest person around, that for sure. There has to be a third song. <laughs> the third song you have. Considering, I uh, think of something that that uh, has meaning uh, as well. But, um, yeah, so much in the same way. I used to listen to a lot of Celtic music, especially when I was interested in. I was very much involved in, in Druidry and, and the Celtic traditions and, and uh, such, and I would listen to um, a lot of that. Uh, there, funny, there is one that I keep, even with the family. And I, it's bad because uh, I've listened to the song, but I can't remember the name. And it's a group of Irish singers, and, and it's um, uh, something about um, Gallant Hero. I think it's really beautiful, and it gets... Uh, I kind of feel like dancing around more than swinging a wand, but <laughs> it's, it's still something else that maybe calls my Irish roots or something. I don't know. Oh my God. When I was in college, my sister and I, we went to see Celtic Woman, that show. Yes, yeah, I've been a fan too. Right. And uh, I knew nothing about that show, right? My sister said that there's like a lady with a flute in it. And I was like, okay, I'm down. Mm -hmm. So we go there. First of all, the music's great. Second of all, only Asian people there, my sister and I. That was cool, too. 
<laughs> and then at the end of the show, first of all, I've never been in an auditorium with so many Irish Americans, which is like straight up Irish people. At the end of the show, these people, like these like old dudes, they got up and they were dancing around like the way that I would imagine like leprechauns dancing, you know? <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, that's so awesome. And that's when I realized Irish people are like, oftentimes people say Koreans are like the Irish of the East. And it's because Korean people do the same thing. It's like, for whatever reason, it's like the music moves them. And so Koreans will just stand up and just start like doing their little dance. You know what I mean? And I was like, okay, I can feel it. I can feel it. But yeah, at the end of Celtic Woman, right? Everybody's dressed nicely and stuff. But by the end, people are just standing up like doing a jig. I'll link down below to the site for the workshop and also a site where you can get, well, right now, I don't think you can get the hardcover of this book anymore, sold out. I got the last signed copy, by the way. Um, but I think they're going to come out with a paperback soon. That's what Miskatonic Books said. So I'll link down to that below as well. And you mentioned that you have a blog. Um, I think you also said that you don't really write in it as often. So I guess Facebook is the best place to reach you. Yeah, Facebook's definitely the best place to reach me and do my interaction. And uh, when people order talismans and such from me, I usually do it from there. I, I updated uh, my blog, Magicians Workings, recently, um, pretty much putting all the, the podcasts that uh, I've done um, on there and kind of um, doing a general update. So, but yeah, still most of my interactions on Facebook. I really hope that if you are in America, especially if you are in Colorado, you get to go to the workshop. And of course, being in an in-person workshop with you, they also get the transmission of your work with spirit. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of spirits helping you during that workshop as well. So it sounds like an amazing experience. If you have seen any of the pictures of his magical talismans, if you've read any of his books, his articles, his blog, then it's like in person. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, I have never received so many messages saying, bring Father Chasan back on. Like immediately. I've never received so many messages asking for a guest to come on so quickly after the initial interview. So, Frater Chasan, thank you so much for spending all this time explaining magic to me. <laughs> it's been my pleasure being back. Thank you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I know the entire time we were talking and stuff, like, especially the music part, I was just like, I know something that other yes, people Yes, I don't. know. She's is she gonna try to reveal my secret? <laughs> I knew I knew that was on the tip of your tongue. I'm like, I'm not gonna go to even if she knows. That would have been that would have been so hardcore if you were just like, you know what? I'm just gonna put it out there. I'm <laughs> 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 that would have been so oh, And I should not be embarrassed, I should be proud. <laughs> I mean, do you realize that even more hipster than your haircut would be you being a fan of after you say that you like, promise you, there'll be all these like dudes who are just like, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan as well. <laughs> <laughs>
articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off.